think when I first started this uh, practice of meditation and awakening, which was uh, a long time ago, (laughs) I really didn't realize how challenging it was going to be. And also how um, mysteriously magical um, the unfoldings that emerged in my life from the ground of the Dharma would be either unexpected. Um, Experiences and meetings and different uh, places and cultures. Um, I suppose when I, when I first began, I, I had this idea that um, when I joined the monastery, often practicing in various um, other ways and searching and looking uh, for uh, a path that would work for me, which eventually led me into taking the robes. I suppose I imagined that I would sit in my hut and sort of float off on a pink cloud (laughs) and uh, would just be somewhere hanging out in some Nibbanic place. Um, And that really didn't happen at all. It was actually a shock um, to my system to realize that I'd actually signed up to some sort of spiritual boot camp <laughs> that was rather unrelenting and challenging and um, and never seemed to stop and not only that I'd ended up living with people that I had chosen to live with and that I realized I I didn't like them very much <laughs> and I lived with them for 12 years so almost like being married uh, to people you hadn't chosen but I did grow to love them. But, uh, we were very, very different personalities and ways of approaching things. And uh, it wasn't till a little while into my practice when I, I suppose I'd been practicing, just focusing on getting more and more calm and concentrated, thinking that would magically somehow lift me out of all of the complexity and problems of my own inner chaos and the what I experienced as a rather meaningless and soulless and difficult world. I didn't realize I would actually be plunged further into the experience of dukkha. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I eventually began to, to get the message um, from the training and from the teachings as Ajahn Chah would say, it's not about avoiding challenge, but actually the path is about is is opening to challenge and allowing that to be a catalyst for the maturing of our insight and wisdom and basically maturing us as a human being and realizing that's an ongoing unfolding. There isn't a, a sort of end point in that. Even for the Buddha, you know, he was awakened, and I'm, I'm sure internally 
As he talked about his dwelling was in the Shunyata Vihara, the dwelling in, in, the, in, the, in emptiness, in Shunyata, in the non-created, in peace. But that didn't mean that there weren't numerous challenges that came at him all the time. And eventually I, I began to understand that it wasn't so much about trying to get away. As Ajahn Chah said, don't try and be a Buddha or even a Bodhisattva. He said, if you're going to be anything, be an earthworm, because at least they're useful. <laughs> you know, they, sort of, they go down and they aerate the soil. He was probably talking to his very ambitious Westerners when he said that. I'm sure it wasn't just a sort of, uh, you know, an ultimate statement. But, uh, you know, just go down and through the material of whatever your curriculum is in this life, rather than being so busy to try and bypass that and become a spiritualized person. Nothing worse than a slightly aloof, spiritualized Buddhist who sort of floats above everything. Um, There are worse things than that, actually. It's not too bad. (laughs) A lot worse. It's actually quite nice, nice, spiritualized, idealized Buddhists. Nice, nice, um, peaceful people. They don't get angry at you. (laughs) But I actually found myself feeling quite angry a lot and quite enraged and upset. And that didn't go along with my spiritual persona. So, you know, when I, when I under, began to understand that actually it was that, those very experiences um, that I would, was, you know, what was held in the shadow, as they say, what isn't very conscious to us, what we've spent a lifetime putting down and putting to one side because we don't want to feel the pain in some of these very raw emotions, or we don't really want to equate them with how we perceive ourselves. Yeah, but the, the thing about monastic life, it pushes you to the place, a bit like a retreat, and this is a mini version of it in some ways, where you can't really escape very easily, especially here at Valacitos. It's not like you can just go down the road and jump on a bus. You know, it's a bit of a mission. Um, and there's not much distraction. So eventually one gets to, to face one's inner demons and realize that uh, they become the catalyst uh, for our awakening and are very necessary um, to engage. And so a lot of, when we undertake a retreat like this and a, or 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 commit to the path of awakening, which involves the inner contemplation, processes of meditation and uh, inner reflection, that a lot of what we land up being with, as we mentioned in the, the discussion this afternoon, is the residue and the momentum of our patterns, or, or what has been put in place, or sort of undigested, uh, habits of the mind and of our uh, psychodynamic material, some of which we, we see uh, again and again our tendencies, our, our hindrances, our obstructions. 
And I talked about how Ajahn Chah said 70% of the, of, the, of the work is just to... Um, I don't know how I put it, but I didn't quite put it quite right. What, what he was saying was that, that 70% of what we're doing here is actually to, to know, to know that that... Uh, to come into mindful, knowing relationship to what obstructs us, to what's hard to be with. Mm. That that's actually quite radically revolutionary. That the old the old ways of being are either to distract, uh, to project and blame, or to repress and deny and push back into the shadow, what we don't really want to be with. So when we can't really avoid. Um, being with uh, what we are experiencing that we find difficult, then to know that we can actually, this, this capacity that we're building of, of uh, mindful awareness of some samadhi, some gatheredness, some agility to be able to establish what's called right view, which means it's not about just having a particular state where we become peaceful and refined, but realizing whatever the state, we can contemplate it, we can be with it. And so then we don't mind so much. We, you know, this is like, as Ajahn Chah was saying, making the practice even. You know, we don't get so pulled around as if in the morning we feel very happy and in the afternoon we feel actually quite depressed. We start to realize that the preferences that we have for the states of minds and people that we're with and the situations that we're in, we can start to even that out. And so it all becomes grist for the mill, it all becomes workable, it all becomes the fodder and the manure for our awakening lotus plant that grows out through the mud and not just sort of stands on a stalk waving in the wind on a pink cloud. It has to be rooted in the mud of our experience and our lives and the challenges that we that we have. So this this is another way of saying that uh, that when we undertake these this practice, um, and in a way that happens in spite of ourselves, because there are many ways that I would think, why am I doing this over the years? You know, this is just plain you know, hard. <laughs> It'd be easier if I could just space out and, you know, watch Netflix forever. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's only so much you can watch of Netflix and realise actually I've seen all the good stuff, you know, and then you start sort of downgrading until you realise you start making yourself sick. And then, you know, I should drag myself off to my meditation cushion and be a bit more productive. <laughs> Yeah, so this, this, you know, but, but it's not so much that we, in some ways, we choose, we sort of get chosen. We sort of unwittingly find ourselves being um, opened up somehow, whatever catalyzes us into the Dharma path. And it's almost impossible at a certain point to leave it. Yeah. So it's like when I was, when I was um, growing up as a, as a kid, we used to have this program on TV called The Prisoner. I think they did a, a contemporary version of it, actually. It was in the 1960s, and this guy, he lives in this sort of very nice enclosure, 
prison, a prison-like place, but it's sort of all controlled, highly controlled. And he's always trying to escape. And he thinks he's escaped, you know, all these elaborate plots to escape, only to find himself in another extension of the same prison, <coughs> the same dynamic. And every time I'd watch this, I just feel this tremendous sense of inner oppression about it. It's like, you know, for God's sake, get out of there. <laughs> and that, you know, it feels a bit like that on the Dharma path sometimes. It feels like, you know, here I am again in this same sort of, you know, another retreat, another sort of eyeball to eyeball with my karma. You know, as Ajahn Sajito would say, you know, a sort of real showdown. Oh, back to the breath. I haven't got any other tricks there. <laughs> Forty odd years of back to the breath. You know, but um, you know, I, I do, I do be inspired by those that you know, like Ajahn Chah, that would say, you know, would be very real about the path. He wasn't trying to pretty it up. He'd say, actually, quite a lot of this boils down to a certain amount of patient endurance. Um, that just to be patient with what is difficult to bear without adding more complexity and more reactivity and more suffering. So that you just allow some of the things, that, you, know, he, you know, just to sort of uh, to, to wear through. Or even the Buddha said that. You know, that Awada um, Padimoka is the first meeting where he laid down the basis of the training. And uh, there's the um, 1,200 arahants spontaneously gathered, which is now commemorated each full moon of February, is it? February full moon, Asala Puja, Magha Puja, sorry, Magha Puja. Where, you know, you think, well, what's the Buddha going to say to 1,200 already fairly awakened beings, if not fully awakened, that are gathered spontaneously together? And his first utterance is, patience, endurance is the ultimate tapas, the ultimate practice for burning through obstructions. And you go, oh God, my grandmother could have said that. But he said that because that's how it is. You know? so it, takes, it takes a lot of patience. You know? You know, and then goes on with the pith of the training to, to uplift that which is wholesome, to overcome the unwholesome and to purify the heart. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. And you know, it's like, okay, well, that sounds like hard work. <laughs> well, it, it's, you know, if we think about it too much, as I was saying the other night, it, it does become rather rather hard, but if we actually just take it as a, as a, as a wonderful opportunity to have this uh, moment of practice, to up, uplift that which is wholesome as we're doing here in our retreat, you know, that takes an effort to hold up the Dharma, the practice, the contemplation of the teachings, the turning up for the sessions, and to, to be with that which is obstructive, which is difficult, uh, to overcome, to not give rise to any more fuel on the fire, but to patiently allow that which has already arisen, which is obstructive, through and quickening the dissolving of that through the application of mindful investigation, and in that process to purify the citta, so we begin to taste the purified heart, the present heart, and begin to recognize that as a, as a refuge, as a real living refuge. This is a real gift that we can 
can do this. But to be a lot of what we're with is the, these, these old uh, sankharas, these old patterns. And they need not only patience, but they, they need a lot of compassion, a lot of kindness. Um, you know, as some of you that started with Goenkaji, when he would say, the sankhara, these patterns, um, these deep tendencies that have come, some of them from our early developmental processes, some of them that are generational, some of them are socially trained into us, conditioned into us, systemically conditioned, you know, that are connected with... with um, with pain in various ways, with dukkha in various ways. You say some sankhara are like just a line drawn on water. Some are like in sand, some in stone. Meaning that, you know, you're sitting here and maybe there's a, a feeling of irritation comes up. Someone does something, they slam the door. And, and um, you know, and you look at that state for a moment and, oh, you know, you don't, you don't make a big deal of it. You feel it and then it passes and it's like in the water. The water goes back to a stillness, to its equilibrium. And they said, well, some are like in sand. So someone slams a door and then, you know, it gives rise to, to, you know, to irritation and then it starts to trigger a whole story and aversion and, and the next thing you spend the whole day <laughs> feeling irritable and averse and, you know, a bit angry and, and why did they and on it goes. And so, you know, and then we react and generate that more and more. But then if there's some mindfulness, we begin to recognize actually this feels very familiar. And we go to the core energy and start to apply the medicine. And then, you know, it starts to dissipate. But then there's some very deep sankharas that are patterned in um, that are are going to be with us maybe as in terms of how they shape the sense of self and underneath that shaping these very core energetic feeling tones and and belief systems about ourself and um, you know reactive patterning that can be with us for a long long time and they might never exactly totally go. Um, but the reactivity around them and the energy in those patterns will begin to subside. And we'll find ourselves one day being triggered mm. and where at one point we would have gone into a deep collapse and depression and some despair that would have lasted a long time. It will arise for a moment, that same pattern, but it's a bit like a ghost just goes through the jitta and you realize it hasn't got power over us anymore. One of the the ones that it that you know some of these deep patterns are even so hard to see because they're so us we don't even know that we have them <laughs> they're, they're 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 there they're integral in our energetic system yeah, so I, I I talked about tongue in cheek and the qigong about my uh, deep sense of um, not really wanting to to be here embodied you know the deep reluctance at some level, and, and, you know, not based really in a some sort of... Um, I used to think it was some sort of spiritual attribute, but I think it based really in, in a deep sense of trauma about being embodied, not just maybe from this life, but it felt very ancient, the ancient sort of resistance 
And so a struggle to sort of meet and, and be there for what life would bring, always having to work through this layering. And, you know, gradually I began to see it rather than as me and, you know, struggle along. I began to see it as a sankara, as a conditioned, something conditioned into the system. And as soon as that began to get some space around that state, it became a different relationship. Um, and in that process, um, be able to open to the layerings, the deeper and deeper layerings, particularly of what was felt underneath that patterning. So I wanted to read a bit about this process when, when it sort of one point when it really started to cons- consolate into a sort of a real powerful dynamic where I could actually start to see the depth of what's sometimes called therapeutically, therapeutically the um, devastating blow to uh, being, the un- intolerable wound of being that, uh, that gets received sometimes in our in in, in our um, process of our journey into life and as we grow up meditation and therapeutic work by making the unconscious conscious reveal our deeper wounds and enable healing a small trigger can be all that's needed to, do- to dive into painful sankara, our primary patterning. In my own healing, a small event triggered a process that began to turn the tide. It was a silly incident, a disagreement between Kitty Sorrow and myself about how much to tip a waiter at a restaurant. We were at a beach resort taking a break from a difficult dynamic in our work in South Africa. I was already under a lot of stress and susceptible to reactivity. This small incident and the overall stress we were under catalyzed my deeper issues around security, placement and belonging, which in turn activated a familiar whirlpool of confusing feelings, triggering my default defense of disassociation. One of the most primitive defense mechanisms is to freeze. When we feel under threat, our instinctive reactions are to fight, flee, or freeze. These reactions pull us out of our parasympathetic nervous system, which regulates deeper rhythms of calm, digestion, rest, and relaxation. The sympathetic nervous system, on the other hand, activates in response to threat. When it does, we are pulled into survival mode. When we move into freeze mode, it's hard to think coherently. Basically, our system is in shock. So we begin to disconnect from our experience. Over the years, I've experienced this mechanism as a chemical reaction that affects the brain. This response, common for many people, aims to protect us by shutting down our system. It's a survival strategy. When conflict can't be managed or emotional reactions threaten the fragility of the cohesion of the self, the natural intelligence of the system is to disassociation, to disassociate, which takes us out of the body and scrambles the brain. 
clarity of thought diminishes and the capacity to respond coherently or effectively shuts down. But as we become more adept at mindfulness, we can slow reactivity and turn it around to appropriate response. However, the process of psycho-spiritual transformation is just that, it's a process. We don't always catch ourselves before spiralling into reactivity. Once activated, layers of painful feelings and discordant voices slice away at any sense of congruence, trust and well-being. That evening at the beach result, I knew I was in irrational territory. I was touching into the deeper matrix of the self-structure, which forms basic patterns of survival at a very young age, when we develop primitive reactions to pleasure and pain. That night, my primary defences were being triggered. However, I was at a place in my practice where I had enough mindfulness to track the process as I entered into one of our deepest wounds, the belief that no one is there for us. The feeling is like the howl of a lonely wolf as it falls through thin ice into freezing and unforgiving water. Actually, it was nighttime by the Indian Ocean. It was warm and balmy, and I was with someone I loved and cherished. And certainly everything was okay. However, as I started to be consumed by this vortex of old conditioning, I felt the freeze of increasing isolation, as if moving into colder and colder water. Looking out to the pitch-dark ocean, I felt a strong pull to walk into it, even though I knew it was shark-infested. At the depth of the wound was the movement towards complete annihilation. But as I understand it, this innate intention towards death, a wish for suicide, didn't surface until I had enough mindfulness to feel this utter desolation. A desolation that offers no redemption, no mercy, nothing can get through. It is anger turned to ice. It is utter aloneness, an icy blackness, which consumes all last vestiges of warmth, hope, light, self-love and well-being. My training of mindful awareness enabled me to hold steady at the edge of a great darkness, into which poured all the wounds we have encountered in South Africa, the impossibility of poverty, the complexity of racism, the overwhelming consequence of AIDS, the most devastating betrayals of trust. It felt as if a trapdoor had opened, letting all the orphans tumble in, the wounded, the marginalised, the lonely and the abandoned. The Hungarian poet Janos Polensky who witnessed the horrors of the Nazi concentration camps, wrote a haunting poem. It talks about the vulnerable self-child hoping for love but abandoned to death. This is our own self-child, but also the the hopeful self-child of all beings who must inevitably meet the agony of samsara. Once upon a time there was a lonely wolf lonelier than the angels. He happened to come to a village where he fell in love with the first house he saw. Already he loved the walls, the caress of the bricks, but the windows stopped him. In the the room sat people. Apart from God, nobody ever found them so beautiful as this childlike beast. So at night he went into the house. He stopped in the middle of the room and never moved from there any more. He stood all through the night with eyes wide open and on into the morning when he was beaten to death.
There are good reasons to disassociate from the harshness of life. We hope our spirituality or our New Age idealism can wrap us in cotton wool and protect us. But alas, awakening demands a more truthful passage through life. Fortunately, it's a journey we can only take with the support of love and of the love of others. My ability to stay with the process that night by the Indian Ocean was made possible by the loving presence of my dearest husband and partner, Kitty Saro, as he sat beside me holding my hand. The loving presence of another, particularly when there is no judgment, can be vital in our ability to negotiate these dark and difficult territories. Perhaps this is the deepest meaning of Sangha, or spiritual friendship, not only to inspire one another, but to be there for one another in moments of utter darkness and to shine a light. When our wounds are received with loving kindness, the possibility of redemption and healing does indeed emerge. That night by the ocean, when Kirisara came to hold my hand, as we just sat quietly together, that simple touch helped me track back from the edge of obliteration. It is here that we understand the value of what we truly offer to one another as humans. The holding of a hand at times of pain and loss is worth more than a conquering army. What I don't say here is that Kinsara was a very brave man to hold my hand <laughs> at that moment because I was about to chomp through every, anyone that would come near. But in this, this practice, not to fear uh, what we must feel. Yeah, that, uh, that actually we can have a lot of fear about what we experience, but when we have, getting, as we are, getting more of a sense of actually applying uh, this mindful awareness, the strength of presence, and to know that which we can be mindful of isn't ultimately what we are is an ultimate shaping of our being. And so that uh, as we become more um, confident in our ability to be with, uh, as, our, as our teacher called, the orphans of consciousness that arise, it's like when we create the space in meditation, we're welcoming those parts of ourselves that have been abandoned, that we have abandoned, that don't fit the nice picture that we, that we have or that we've been conditioned into. You know, these places that get frozen, the deep places of, of um, anger or rage or uh, freeze or abandonment. <clears throat> what I noticed at the, you know, as, 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 uh, as I began to allow myself at that night and then on in from there, you know, when we actually sort of hit the, the, the sort of the base camp, of our wound and feel it is is that it actually begins to um, become healed. There's actually healing that starts to to happen. It's very nice if we can do that. I was talking about therapy. Um, that you know that's really the heart of therapeutic journey to have someone help to hold you in that process. But we don't always we not always in the right moment in the right place that someone's going to be there for us. So we're learning to really be that inner therapist and friend to, to ourselves as well, so that we can also hold ourselves and to realize nothing is going wrong. 
This isn't a sign when we experience obstructions and pain and difficulty um, that, that we're bad or something has gone wrong. It's actually something is going right. This is also one of the fruits of the practice. And we like to talk about the fruits of practice as you know, more peace, more insight, more clarity. But fruits of the practice are also about our ability to be with what is profoundly painful to be with. Uh, to be with those moments when we feel uh, that we've lost the plot, that we don't know what to do, that we feel confused, that we feel overwhelmed, that we feel upset. And there's certainly you know, many, many moments when we can feel like that. So as Ajahn Chah would teach, you know, the, one of the things he would say, when you, when you can't actually distract, when you can't go up, you can't go down, you can't move sideways anymore, that's when the real practice begins. That's when we have no other choice, really, than to actually meet what is happening. In many ways, what happens um, personally in our own personal journey of reclamation, the reclamation of uh, holiness, sacredness, um, respect and honouring of our body, of ourselves, of our processes, of each other, um, the process of healing, of the psyche, of our emotional wounds, and even of the body uh, through this practice that we're doing. What happens personally is also true of the collective. We're at a time um, where we're sharing and in the midst of uh, a great planetary emergency, a great crisis. Urquhart Tolle said that ultimately you're not a person but a focal point where the universe is becoming conscious of itself. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, well, I don't... Yeah, it is maybe the universe becoming conscious of itself, but maybe it's consciousness becoming conscious of itself. That we're becoming self-conscious, not only of aware of ourselves as, as personalities and all that I've just spoken about, but we're becoming conscious at great speed through this planetary emergency of everything that has gone to contribute to bring us to this place. All the systems uh, that have been put in place that have profoundly divorced us from our deep relationship with ourselves, with our body, with nature, with each other as human beings. And these systems of of oppression and of extraction and of... um, distancing and abstraction. I've been doing a lot of, um, I guess because, I guess because I don't know why we do what we do or where I get led to where I get led to, but, you know, I have been working in Africa, Kirisara and I, for now 25 years. And of course, you know, it's a very deep contemplation on colonialism and racism. That's what South Africa's all about. <laughs> In many ways, an extreme expression through apartheid of, uh, you know, apartheid in South Afrikaans literally means apart, to live apart of the schizoid, insane project of, um, you know, that 
in part landed from the roll on down from Nazism from Europe of segregating everyone into some classification according to colour and um, even hair, you know, curly hair called the pencil test. Some families were even designated some children in different categories, racial categories, and sometimes it would come down to the pencil test. You know, if the pencil fell through the hair, then you might go towards more coloured or white. If it stayed, then you'd go black. You know, and so the, the extreme insanity of a system that went on for nearly 50 years and was legislated. And, you know, we arrived when that was overturned, but not without a hundred years struggle from the ANC, the African National Congress. And, um, you know, that's an ongoing story, because they didn't all turn out to be saints either. <laughs> and the while Mandela gave a lift, um, and there's this extraordinary conscious at the moment of transition, you know, inevitably the karma of what went before has led us to a point, like it's led us in America and the UK, to a point of, you know, where one's right on the edge of we don't quite know what, but it doesn't look good. You know, perhaps complete and utter breakdown of the society, the destruction of societal norms, even those that many may be unhealthy, but even those that are functioning justice systems, economic systems, social systems, um, so potential chaos, um, or perhaps to break through and, you know, um, reconfiguration, um, so badly needed uh, reconstruction of the new world that's so desperately trying to be born, that we're all birthing at this time, and we don't want a stillbirth, we want that to be fully infused with life and power so that we can um, move through our evolutionary journey. But, you know, we're at this very, very critical time where there's these immense forces um, that won't um, give up, that have had power for a long, long time. We can see it in the political structure at the, the top of the pile now, playing out in the US, the, the patriarchy in particular which is one of the oldest systems where everything else sort of fits into that, really, um, which is brutalising for everyone. looks like men win out, but actually it's also brutalising for masculine in many ways, desensitising and profoundly disempowering and repressive of the feminine, profoundly destructive of, of nature, plundering and fracking... <laughs> Um, so the word sounds near to another word that's unmentionable in a Dharma talk, but <laughs> fracking the earth. You know, the, for the first time in, in the UK, I was just at an anti-fracking protest in London outside Barclays Bank, which was one of the main investors. And, uh, after you know, nearly a decade of local protests across the UK, and uh, for the first time, three of those protesters have been jailed uh, for several years under terrorist, terrorist, action, terrorist uh, legislation. That's not really happened in England before. It shows you that they're really getting desperate, that, they, that it's really coming down, down to the wire, this, this, um, uh, this immense battle for the earth, and who's going to control what. But in all of that, I, I've, you know, I was gonna, began to say, I got slightly off on a tangent there, was that I 
you know, been um, doing a lot of reading, both um, research and reading uh, books and novels about the slave trade, which upon which capitalism was built. Um, and, you know, we might think, oh, that was a long time ago, what does it matter? Or I'm not really interested. But if we've benefited, as all of us have, from the capitalist structure, which is now cannibalizing everything, we've got to that stage, you know, then we have to understand it was what it was built upon. And, um, and also, I have, you know, of course, Brit- Britain was one of the primary players in the transatlantic trade from the late 1500s until eventually it started to peter out in the late 1800s. Um, and that, you know, through that process, 10 to 12 million Africans extracted and shipped to the West in what we call now the West Indies and the Americas and the so-called New World, and the enormous, um, profound um, devastation that, 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 that the repercussions of which are still rippling across the African continent, and the profound denial that we have of what our wealth has been built on. You know, you go across Britain and all the stately homes, all from the sugar trade in the West Indies, and you know, the, you, you know some of these homes that we actually now use for meditation, <laughs> old aristocratic dwellings, and to realise that most of our ruling class, seventy percent in Britain, have come not from when the end of the trade came about, wasn't um, actually relinquished overly willingly. It was only really relinquished when all of the traders, the guys that were really controlling it, were paid out for which Britain has just finished paying for about two years ago, the, the bill of that to the taxpayers. And most of those descendants of those early planters and traders are now our ruling class, including um, David Cameron, who brought about Brexit, which is basically going to be, it looks like, if it gets pushed through a heyday for oligarchs as we are deregulated and become the stomping ground for the new American project, the 52nd state, maybe, as our national health system gets privatised and up for grabs, and we join. That might not happen, it's on the edge, you know, it could be a sweep of a socialist government. Anyway, I'm sure this shouldn't all be in a Dharma talk. (laughs) I'll try and get back on track. (laughs) But it's, um, what I I was, you know... um, contemplating in all of this is the not only the um, the horrors of what happened and the, and the enormity of how long it took and how long it went on but it was also the, what interested me is the resistance that arose to that that, that actually did start to sweep across Britain in the right from the 1700s a sort of boycotting of sugar the local, um, sort of energised not only an anti-slavery movement, but a movement for the working classes. Um, and so this, 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 this forever, like our own personal journey, the arising of the awakening process and the intensification of the hindrances that sometimes come up to meet that process, like uh, Master Wa would say, you know, sometimes the more you're working with awakening, the stronger the hindrances can be. You know, there's something that doesn't, like the force of Mara, the night of the, the Buddha's enlightenment, there's something that really, the profound ignorance that really doesn't want awakening to happen. 
that really wants to keep some, the human consciousness bound. And it's something that we're all deeply colluding with at some level, you know, that we, not consciously, but this, this fundamental ignorance. And so those forces work together, and those forces working at a, a planetary level, uh, an intensifying, this intensifying of that which is, um, you know, so profoundly destructive, and at the same time the, the emergence of this awakening resistance that's rising up to meet um, and challenge so the, from the, the internal to the external, the same principles reply, apply to be able to, to see that not only is there, you know, sometimes there's been a, a lot of um, despair about you know, how challenging it is now at this time, but also I was telling uh, one of the groups the other day about this, this wonderful artist called Chris Jordan who was involved in the Midway Project where he makes a documentary about the albatross and what's happening to the albatross because of the, the Pacific garbage patch. And he's done a very, he's obviously a meditator, he's done a very meditative documentary where he takes you right into the heart of the experience where you almost become the albatross. And when, well, you know, I sh- we show, I was just um, in, in Britain doing a retreat with a, f- a friend of mine on deconstruction of class in British society. <laughs> Here it's a, you know, a lot about um, race and so on. It's also about that, but the class system there. And towards the end we showed this um, documentary of the, the albatross, where through the process, this meditative unfolding of being with this incredible bird, and it's like the, the old friend of the mariners of old, this you know, out on the ships and you'd see the bird coming and you'd know somewhere there was land. But these birds can go for 10,000 miles to look for food. Um, They're incredible. And yet they're being decimated by the plastic that we're, that's accumulating in the oceans. And you can't watch this without really having your heart broken. I mean, I've watched it before, but, you know, when I watched it with a group from a meditative place, I, I just, you know, it just took me out. At, at such a profound level. And I think really what's happening um, and the meditation is about to disassociate from what we feel, but to really allow ourselves to have our hearts broken at this time. Not to just be you know, completely decimated, but so we can really feel <coughs> the depth of um, the reality of what is happening so that through that engagement at that level, the the immune response of the of the earth as it rises up through us can be activated and engaged. It's a bit like the uh, the story of Avalokiteshvara, who we've been contemplating and drawing from these really ancient. I mean, Avalokiteshvara goes way back even before the Buddha Dharma. It's a very ancient being, ancient metaphor, ancient energy around compassion around mercy around the power of vows of the power that you know that the feeling like I just want to get out of here it's like when I when I first went to listen to teachings to the Dalai Lama in London when I was a young nun and I was a Theravadan nun committed to getting out the wheel of Sangsara as quick as I could that was the that was what I thought the thing was the whole thing was about 
And then the, before the Dalai Lama gave these teachings, he got everyone to take the Bodhisattva vows. So I did, and then I went back and I had a panic attack because I thought, not only have I vowed, you know, to, you know, be here for a short while in this life, I vowed to be here until the last blade of grass is liberated, and I can't even cope with the next day. You know, so I really was very, you know, like, but you know, this vow, it's going you know, to take it seriously. So I went to my teacher um, and said, look, I think I've made a really big mistake. <laughs> and uh, he said, what happened? I said, I just took the Bodhisattva vows. <laughs> and he had a really, really lovely response. He said, well, you know, really, you're thinking about it from the sense of self. You know, if you think about it from you existing for eons, that's a rather grandiose way of looking at it all, because you don't really exist at some level in the way you think you do. So I thought, well, that sounds, you know, <laughs> wrote that one out. So, <laughs> so the way to really approach this whole territory is, is it's an act of great patience. It's the patience, the willingness to be with how it is for however long it takes, for however long this takes. You know, that's the heart of the Bodhisattva. And so Avalokiteshvara, in the, one of the Tibetan stories, it talks about the the vows that Avalokiteshvara makes as a young bodhisattva and decides to come down to earth as bodhisattvas do and to you know, teach living beings and then basically began to realise that they were unteachable that they were completely you know, committed to ignorance, greed, hatred and delusion and so after a lifetime you know, Avalokiteshvara thought well I'll give it another go in another lifetime and after a few lifetimes this incredible despair started to set in. He's feeling this is unworkable. There's, there's no one really that interested in all of this in, in awakening. So at a certain point of great despair, it said that Avalokiteshvara cried out to to uh, to his guru, a guru, a guru, and with great sense of anguish, cried out to Amitabha who represents limitless light, the, the limits that lies in light and life of reality. And in that process, Avalokiteshvara was just shattered into a thousand pieces across the ground. And Amitabha appeared and looked at all these shattered pieces and said to Avalokiteshvara, said, well, what did you expect? <laughs> you know, you made all these big vows. What did you, what did you expect? It's, you know, it's going to be a bit challenging. <laughs> and so never mind, I'll, I'll help you. I'll, I'll put you back together. So it said that Amitabha put back all the pieces of Avalokiteshvara and then gave Avalokiteshvara... Guan Yin, these thousand hands and eyes, and then these eleven heads that face could face all directions to give more capacity, so that that she, that she got re kind of shaped, reborn, remade into this great Bodhisattva, and had all these very cool instruments in her hands that she could respond to uh, suffering and to help living beings and to rescue them and to teach. And I think this, this is a very good metaphor for the process that we undergo uh, as awakening beings. That at a certain point, um, not just once, but many times, we get to the place where we, we can't do it. The, the, the me can't do it. You know? um, and there's this sort of shattering that happens, and this <coughs> despair, and this collapse. But you know, in this practice, we're being reshaped and remade, and our capacity is growing. 
This is what happens. It's not just the deconstructing, it's also there is a, an emergence, little by little. This is the patient. It's not necessarily a quick you know, shift and suddenly we have full capacity. Little by little, we, we're growing into our potential. And so something that we would have met, someone criticizes us, um, some um, terrible, um, intense situation that's going down. It's not that if we meet what we're meeting now, that's all it seems to be these days. Um, that we, we little by little realize we have a bit more capacity, we have a bit more stretch, we have a bit more patience, we have a bit more clarity, we have a bit more willingness to stay with, to not just turn our gaze away, uh, to to, in the same way as we with our own sankharas, our own patterning, to, in the bodhicitta heart, the bodhisattva heart, to be willing, we have all our reactions from the self, but to be willing to hold the whole thing <coughs> at, at great depth, the manifestation of the enormity of the chaos and the, the suffering and the sheer venility of these old systems of power that are holding on and being willing to destroy everything as long as they can hold power. The sheer cravenness of it all. And yet it's also part of what is actually there quickening our collective awakening. This is what I feel. That it's not without its purpose. You know, I was reading that Emily's List, which is an organization that supports women that want to run um, for office in America. Generally speaking, over a year, it would have like about a thousand applications of interest. After a few months after the last election, over 20,000 women. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's an unstoppable force. Yeah. So we can see, you know, as we look, we can see the fragility of those trying to hold on that think they can control it all. I remember this, um, some of you know, of the generation. <clears throat> I think my thing is telling me that it's time to wrap up. So for the, uh, the old oldie ones here, the story from Ramdas um, about Maharaji, named Karoli Baba, great saint. I mean, really great saint. <laughs> great um, cities. And how um, he was one day in Delhi laying on his tucket. And at the time there was the inauguration of Indira Gandhi and all these bands and hoo-ha going on down the street. And he just looked, you know, to one of his disciples and he just said, look at all that, and it's just another worldly king. And Ramdas said when he heard that, he just got a flick for a moment of the consciousness of Nankarali Baba, that to see he's just another worldly king arising on the sea of Sangsara, thinking they're all powerful, and omnipotent, only to, you know, inevitably crash. Or as Gandhi said, you know, all those that 
strive towards hatred and division, all of them, all of them go down without exception. Because the nature, as as the, the Buddha said, the nature of the eternal law is that love always conquers hate. Mm-hmm. This is the eternal law. And it's to that that we must hold steady to, even in the face of the most um, challenging dark night that, of, the, of the heart, which we're in now. We're in the sort of dark night of the planet, really. These enormous forces playing out. But the awareness that we're cultivating here has the capacity to hold it all, actually. It's unbounded, it's immovable, it was here at the beginning, it will be here at the end. uh, It's that which we return to, it's that which plugs us into the living Dharma, deep intelligence of the mother, of the earth, of the Dharma itself, the Dharma body. The Prajnaparamita, before the Buddha, was the the womb of intelligence that gave birth to the Buddhas. The deep feminine within all beings, the deep nurturer, the deep lover. And it's that that we uh, must uh, plug into and take refuge in. From the Khoisan. This is the finish, I promise. Told by Kabo. I feel that tonight I shall die, for I am wounded by an arrow, and the wound is telling me that I shall die. The bite of the wound is fierce, and the mouth of the wound does not heal, but it swells and throbs, so my flesh aches, and I burn with pain, and I feel my heart falling. I know I shall not see the break of another day, for my heart feels I am to die, and I cannot bear to think of the smell of springbok. But as for you, you must look after the children. You must keep them with you. You must keep them beside you. You must not take your eye from them. You must not give them away to strangers. You must keep a good fire so that the cold does not kill them. And though I will be dead... I will think of you and the children. I will still think of you and wonder whether you are warm and have food. I shall not speak to you again. I shall not speak to you in the darkness of the night. But you shall fetch wood and make a fire and sit beside me and watch over me and take care of me as I writhe by the fire. For the time of death has come and the time for talking is over. I speak to you, holding up your heart, so that you may understand, told by Kabul in the commentary, this poem, Time. With relentless harvesting, your precious human life is short. As all life gathers proof of our faith through the pilgrimage of the night that tests the ground of our being, so we may know the measure of courage and the wellspring of the heart from which we sip nectar. Just as the brown striped bug drinks from the white elderflower and the orange thin-winged butterfly skips through ochre grasses and the grey knowing wolves move through cold white snow and the rhinos through dry bush felt go. 
as lions stalk impala along the river slow. Slow is the earth's rhythm, deep and unfathomable in our collective soul, the rhythm of the day's tick-tock, winding through the web of our connection of internet consumption where we search what we hope to know. But to truly know is to not know, and to not know is so much evidence of where faith can go. And from the sutras, it is like a great regal tree growing in the rocks and sand of barren wilderness. When the roots get water, the branches, leaves, flowers and fruits will all flourish. The regal tree of enlightenment growing in the wilderness of birth and death is the same. All living beings are its roots. All Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are its flowers and fruits. By serving all beings, by serving this great earth, by pouring the water of living, gentle and fierce compassion, together we will embody the flowers and fruits of our true awakening. And even when the realms of empty space are exhausted, the realms of living beings are exhausted, the karmas of living beings are exhausted, and the afflictions of living beings are exhausted, we will still accord with this, our deepest heart, endlessly, continuously, in thought after thought, without cease, our body, speech and mind never weary of this service. So says our true heart, Gate Gate, Paragate, Parasangate, Bodhishvaha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.